and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Listeners, we're in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Originally, we'd planned to rebroadcast our interview with Alex Harrow this week so that we could enjoy some travel during spring break. Alex's debut novel, The Ten Thousand Doors of January, was recently nominated for the Nebula Award. But due to quarantines, we're not traveling. Instead, we're adapting, learning to use remote recording technology so we can bring you some new episodes while still physically distancing from guests. Everyone stay safe, keep reading, and we'll be back with new episodes soon. Hey, book lovers. Before we get started, we'd like to ask a favor. We'd be so honored if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Because of that big, long word, algorithms, more ratings and reviews help other listeners find us. And if you write a review, we'll read it on the air. Carrie and I have a very special guest today. Alex Harrow is a Hugo Award-winning writer of historical fantasy fiction who also happens to be a fellow Kentuckian. Her debut novel, The Ten Thousand Doors of January, has been called by Kirkus Reviews a love letter to imagination, adventure, and the written word. And NPR Books says it is one that should go on your favorite shelf. It has been on the Los Angeles Times bestsellers list. She is a rising star in the burgeoning female revolution taking place in the science fiction and fantasy genres. On November 16th, she'll be at one of the authors you can find at the Kentucky Book Festival, being held at the Alltech Arena of the Kentucky Horse Park in Lexington, Kentucky. We interviewed Alex at the library of her alma mater, Berea College in Berea, Kentucky. She talked with us about the subgenre of portal fantasies and her love-hate relationship with them, what influence becoming a mother had on writing her book, why she loves Chicago-style footnotes, and details about her second novel that she is furiously trying to finish. Amy and I have gone on yet another field trip, and we are in Berea, which is a lovely little town in Kentucky. We are here today with Alex Harrow, who is an author who writes sci-fi fantasy. She's got a new book that has come out called The 10,000 Doors of January, and we are gonna be learning all about her and her writing and her book, so welcome. Alex, thank you so much for coming all the way over here. <laughs> so tell us first just a little bit about yourself. Uh, so I grew up mostly in Kentucky uh, in a big old farm outside of Bowling Green. And then I went to Berea College in the library where we are sitting right now. I had a lot of late nights here. And then I graduated in 2009, which is a phenomenally jobless time for a history <laughs> major to graduate in. And so I spent some time after that just kind of extremely footloose, barely employed. I did some like migrant farm work and I ended up in Maine harvesting blueberries 
And then I fell in love. And then I went back to grad school because I thought, like, I need another history degree. <laughs> that's really that's going to make right. a difference. The right. yeah. That's going to get you the job. That's it. That's it. That doesn't exist. <laughs> and I got my master's in history from the University of Vermont. And then we kind of circled back to Kentucky, back to Berea, because my husband needed to finish his degree. And Berea is free for low-income students, just like advertising that, guys. <laughs> And then I was an adjunct for a while, and now I'm a full-time writer, and my husband is in charge of our one- and three-year-olds at home. So I'm pretty amazed, just in general, <laughs> that you have time to write with a one- and a three-year-old. Really Even with the husband that husband. <laughs> <laughs> so the short stories that you've written and your debut novel, they're science fiction fantasy-focused. Was this something that you, is this a genre that you read a lot of as a child or one that you've always been interested in? Yeah, uh, so I call myself a second-generation nerd. Like, I grew up sitting in my mom's lap while she played Zelda on Nintendo. Uh, we watched The Next Generation together, all that. I started out with the classic kids' fantasy books covered from her, like I had uh, Narnia, The Last Unicorn, E. Nesbitt, Wonderland, The Hobbit, all that. And then kind of as I hit middle school, I feel like there was a, a big boom in like 90s girl, young adult fantasy. And me and my mom kind of found that together. So Tamora Pierce, Robin McKinley, Diane Duane, uh, Diana Wynne-Jones, obviously Harry Potter, all of that stuff hit me like at the exact right age. And then it kind of like flowed into the wider world of adult sci-fi and fantasy. So some of the older stuff, Le Guin, Octavia Butler, and then Bujold, who like the Vorkosigan saga, me and my mom read a million times. Susanna Clarke, N.K. Jemisin, Naomi Novik for some of the new ones. So there's just like this wealth of sci-fi and fantasy. And I read a lot of other genres. Like I think of myself as a messy reader, but that is definitely where my heart is. And I think what I liked about them, like what I liked about it as a kid is what I still like about fantasy now, which is that it it takes the truth and gives it just a ridiculous scale and scope. So like the experience of being a young woman and coming into your own strength or power or whatever in a young adult fantasy is made into like literally developing powers, you know, and going on an actual quest rather than this internal one. And I liked seeing that turned inside out. Like the existence of evil in the world is a literal supervillain, and the desire to escape is actually walking through doors in other worlds. And I just love the way it, it exaggerates the truth in a way that is more true in some ways. Well, it's almost like it, it goes from being something that's somewhat simple and it becomes mythological. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. You took some of that training in your bachelor's and your master's mm. in history and is that in your writing? Do you weave that into your writing at all? I mean, it's a lot of what I write is historical fantasy. So definitely like the actual things that I learned in my lectures, I apply. But I think the more important stuff I got out of my academic writing is that everything that you're writing is an argument about reality. Like when you're trying to write academic history, I think you're trying to make a narrative out of something that may not have one, and you're trying to make a specific argument about what happened and why and why it matters. And I think you're kind of trying to do the same thing with fiction. So it helped me feel like telling a story, you have to have evidence behind it and intention, and you're crafting a reality that you're trying to convince others to buy. Uh, it also gave me 
just like complexity in my worldview in terms of what power looks like and who has it and how it's undermined. And it gave me like a crippling love for Chicago style footnotes. It's in everything <laughs> that I write. I noticed the footnotes. Yeah. I know. Well, and, and as I was reading, now I'm not completely finished. I'm like two, page 247. <laughs> so close. But I noticed that, and I had to sort of keep reminding myself when I was reading it, this is fiction, like, you know, because I wanted to be like, oh, maybe I should reference that, but oh, wait, it's not real. Well, some of them are. Some of them are real. Okay, well, that's good to know. That's good to know. Uh, yeah. Well, there was a footnote, I think, about E. Nesbitt, and, but it was another name that she used. I hear her... Uh, before she married. So yeah, I looked it up because I thought, is this is this a real person? And I didn't know that. So that was important. Well, that's, that's good to know, though. So anybody who reads this, you know, like some of them might be worth, you know, Googling to find out if they're... Did you have an, um, an era that was an emphasis for you when you were um, uh, so doing my history? thesis in grad school was sort of turn of the 20th century British children's literature and looking at themes of race and empire in, in that you know, using those as historical evidence rather than literary subjects. So that is the one that I know most about. It wouldn't say it's my favorite because it's awful, um, but it's awful in a way that I think is really explanatory and, and illuminating for kind of the power structures that we live with now and, and social and economic and class issues. I think that they're all being kind of codified and uh, exaggerated during that era. So I have a lot of fascination with it and I keep going back to it. Before we get started talking about your novel, you had a short story recently, A Witch's Guide to Escape, a Practical Compendium of Portal Fantasies, and it won a Hugo Award. And I'm so sorry about that title. It's way too long to read. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but yeah. that's okay. There's a lot going on in that story. And you had stories nominated for the Nebula Award as well. Tell us about the nomination process and the win, and were you aware of all of this going on in advance? Yeah, I mean, not much advance. So the Hugo nomination in particular is a voted award by the members of a particular convention. I think Worldcon uh, is what it's called. And so I didn't know about that until, like, all the votes are in, and they send out an email, like, a few hours before they announce it. Oh, uh, wow. Which was That's amazing. not any advance notice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have, like, a second to be like, oh, what am I going to tweet? And then that's it. Um, <laughs> And then the whole ballot was amazing this year. One of the short stories on there is P. Jelly Clark's The Secret Lives of the Nine Negro Teeth of George Washington, which is also too long of a title. You're welcome. <laughs> but, uh, but now I want to read that story. Oh, 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 it's title. so good. It won the Nebula this year. Okay. We were on several ballots together, and he won the Nebula, and I won the Hugo, and I just think it's a fantastic story. But on the actual award day, because they don't tell you ahead of time, it's like announced at the banquet, which was in Ireland this year, and I was at my in-laws trying to get an old VHS of Toy Story to play for my kids and their cousins, and I was like checking my phone, and then like Twitter told me. That's how I found out. You found out on Twitter? Yeah. Everybody was like live tweeting the thing, and I couldn't get the live feed to work of the banquet, so yeah. Yeah. So I, I just feel like I need to <laughs> just focus a moment on this is the fabulous life of a writer. <laughs> it's very glamorous. <laughs> it is. I lead a very glamorous life. Toy yeah. Story, VHS. I yeah. mean, just... I know. Yeah. Well, we were at grandparents' houses, so right. that's what we were working with. I just think, I think it's a good reminder for myself, too, <laughs> that it sometimes seems glamorous, but it's a lot of work, and it's a lot of... It sounds like by the seat of your pants yeah. type yeah. experiences that go into writing and... Yeah. 
and awards and all that stuff. So, so for people who aren't familiar, who don't read a lot of science fiction or fantasy and maybe don't know about the Hugo, it is a huge, huge <laughs> honor. It's a weird test to tell people like about a Hugo and you're like, if you know, you're already a nerd. So That's like, right. It's already <laughs> giving yourself away. So my, my husband might be the nerdiest of the nerds <laughs> because... On his bucket list, he joined the Society for the Hugo Awards, but he wants to go to the convention, and he voted on them this year. My husband is a big sci-fi fantasy Uh person, but he's also, which isn't surprising, I think, because a lot of times if you're nerdy, you're also very introverted. Yeah. And so he's very introverted. I'm like, I think you and Amy's husband would really (laughs) have some things to talk about. Some nerd stuff. Some nerd stuff. So, your debut novel, The 10,000 Doors of January, came out this summer. Can you give us just a brief synopsis of a teaser for the novel? I can, because publishers give you entire marketing teams to work on creating a brief <laughs> synopsis, and I don't have to do it, so oh, I there need you to go. tell you. So, it's 1901, and a girl finds a door to another world, and then 10 years later, she has to find her way back to that door in that other world with the help of this mysterious book that she gets in the mail, and her friends, and her terrible dog. So, it is a portal fantasy. It's an adventure. There's a little bit of mystery, and there's a little bit of romance. Uh, It's a book within a book, and it does, as previously noted, have footnotes. So, it's a lot of things. I have to say, when I started reading it, and when the dog... His name is Sinbad, but it, he goes by Bad for short. I fell in love. I'm a huge, <laughs> huge dog person, and if there's ever a dog character, that really wins me I mean, over. my actual dog that I got at about the same age as January is named Magellan, and he goes by Jelly. So, you know, he's kind of my dog. That's yes, awesome. I, love, I love the dog in this. The 10,000 Doors of January, but also the short story that we had mentioned, A Witch's Guide to Escape, they're both portal fantasies and I wasn't really even aware of what a portal fantasy was neither was I till my nerd husband told me about it did the nerds tell you yeah thanks nerds so a, a portal fantasy would be a portal would be some type of passage door gate something that gets you into another realm I guess yeah, Alex, would you say that that's... It. And so examples would be C.S. Lewis going through the, the wardrobe and Lewis Carroll falling into the rabbit hole. Has this particular type of fantasy always interested you? What, what is it about portals that sort of resonates with you? Yeah, I mean, when I listed, like, the books I read as a kid, a lot of those are the portal fantasies of Peter Pan. You're going to Neverland or Wonderland or Narnia or someplace better and cooler. So that's, like, pretty deep in my DNA. But I loved them and kind of hated them. Because in a portal fantasy, at least, like, the classic ones, there's always a last chapter where the kid wakes up or goes back home. Like, Narnia, they become kings and queens, and then they just fall back through the wardrobe and they're kids again. And that is a real letdown (laughs) if you're a certain kind of kid. So I kind of had this love-hate relationship with them for a long time. And then in grad school, I looked at them kind of in the context of imperial power dynamics, and it became clear to me that a lot of the portal fantasies I loved were actually colonial fantasies. So when you think about Narnia... In one sense, it is a delightful adventure about escape. And in another sense, it is four young white British children who go find a foreign world, which is populated conveniently by animals, and end up saving it and then becoming kings and queens. 
which is a little yikes when you look at the actual history of, of what's going on at the time. I started to kind of wish that I could take a portal fantasy that had the things that I loved, like that a sense of wonder and escape and discovery, but none of the things that I hated. And to do that, it seemed necessary to bring in people who were less powerful in our actual world. Like who, I started to ask myself, who actually needs escape in our world? Like who would really need that door? Not just who is like, oh, what a delightful, whimsical thing we found in our uncle's mansion. Who needs it? Well, in both of the works that you've published, the short story and the book, your characters, you know, there's a lot of female, a lot of minority characters that maybe you wouldn't have found in a lot of those classic portal fantasies. Do you think that portal fantasies are more suited to these kinds of Yeah, I don't know if they are, but I mean, they were for me, just because I think if you're interested in inverting the power dynamics, you have to think about race and class and gender. Like, you Mm -hmm. have to think about who's getting to go on this adventure and what they find on the other side. And are they going as conquerors or are they going as explorers or are they just trying to escape the strictures of our own world? And I think if you're asking those questions, like, there's no way not to end up with people who are marginalized in our world. So let me just say, because I'm, I'm English teaching all over this as you're talking, <laughs> because when, when Amy and I were driving, you know, we had like an hour and a half drive down here, and we were talking about some of the things that I, I find is lacking sometimes in contemporary. I tend to be more like a classic, like I like the older stuff. Mm. And I think some of it's because a lot of time contemporary books are missing the the deeper symbolism that that sort of depth that I personally like Mm -hmm. so one of the things we were talking about and one of the things that I'm enjoying in your book is that it has those levels you know like you can read it and enjoy it on just kind of a pure I love fantasy entertainment level but then there's a lot of these deeper things that if you think about there's just a lot more depth to it so from the English teacher perspective that's one of the things that I'm enjoying um, because it can be enjoyed both ways you know and and simultaneously too yeah I hope so I read an article recently, it was in The Atlantic. It was about the difference between British children's stories and American children's oh, story. Uh, it was like um, uh, Harry Potter versus Tom Sawyer. Uh-huh. And it was talking about the differences. And that uh, in a lot of British children's stories, like the ones that we've talked about, there's a lot of fantasy in them. But in American children's stories, it's a lot of day-to-day life. So you have Tom Sawyer, Call of the Wild, um, little women, things wow. that are more... Oh, I have so many feelings about this. Okay, keep going, keep <laughs> well, going. Well, well, what I'm thinking is you're kind of using more of the British yeah. fantasy novel, but yet it's based in the United States. Yeah. Part of it is set in, in Kentucky. So there's kind of the the combining of the two, which is pretty yeah. interesting. I mean, I obviously read a ton of British children's yes. literature. Like, yeah. I have that locked down pretty hard. But I would say that particularly that Tom sawyer era of American children's literature. I feel like it is fantasy, even though it's not magic. It is certain fantasies about what it's like to live in the West, like mm-hmm. Little House on the Prairie. Mm-hmm. Fantasies right. about what the frontier looks like and, and cold you know, white fang and whatever the survivor fantasies are. And Tom Sawyer is in no way a literal representation of what it's like. To, like yeah. there are elements of it, but also it's exaggerated and fantastical. And it's like this imagined idea of the American landscape that I feel like just because we're fantasizing about different things doesn't make it realism. Right. <laughs> right. A lot of times when we think about fantasy and sci-fi, and maybe this is why I did not used to like sci-fi and fantasy I when know, I was welcome. younger. welcome. <laughs> it's better now. 
And, and I will say, because I don't remember so much elementary and middle school, but I remember in high school, we had to do something about sci-fi. And I read a book by Arthur C. Clarke. Tell me which one. I don't remember. Okay. I'll, I'll Google okay. it. Um, and then there was another one. I don't think this is the one by Arthur C. Clarke, but it was called To Your Scattered Bodies Go. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, that's that not that's Philip. Um, I can't think of his name. Here, let me. There's only like here six old white dudes sitting <laughs> okay. so. uh, Let's see. Philip Jose Farmer. I didn't love him, you know. So the book that got me like totally interested in reading was Jane Eyre. And I don't know if that's because mm. that was a female character, you know, very female centered. The point I'm getting to in a very, very roundabout way <laughs> is a lot of the books that have been written in those genres have been by old white men until recently. So so the question that I want to ask is, do you have any thoughts on why? Now, there have been, I, I should back this up, because there yeah. have been pockets of There's female writers. There's probably. Yeah. Well, and Octavia thinking. Butler. And Octavia See, Butler. here's the thing, though. All right. Sorry to cut you off. Like, yeah, I have no, so no, many no, feelings no. about this. Um, was just That's why we're talking to you. <laughs> and we don't have an hour-long <laughs> Carrie yeah. and Amy show. Nobody wants to hear yeah. us. <laughs> Everyone brace yourselves for a small lecture. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So, so the thing is that. If you looked at like the awards list and the Hugo list, you do see this massive change in the last five years, in particular in terms of women and other marginalized genders who are suddenly appearing. And it could look like they just popped out of the ground. But I know from my own personal reading history and and you know just kind of knowing the genre that like women and people of marginalized genders have been writing so much for so long. Like we have always been writing so. You mentioned Le Guin, but like the entire genre of sci-fi was arguably started by an 18-year-old girl. This is this is Frankenstein. Yeah. Like that is the first sci-fi novel. And you know, like men can argue with me about that, but like come at me. <laughs> uh, Ursi is 1968. Kindred, which is Octavia Butler, mm-hmm. that's 69. Patricia McKillop won the very first World Fantasy Award that was ever given in 1975. And all that fantasy and sci-fi that I grew up on. Like, did I mention men? Barely. Like, Tolkien and gay men, sort of, but they were, like, our token white guys when I was reading. So, like, I had this totally different canon that I think existed underneath and beside this other very white male canon to sci-fi and fantasy. Like, I didn't read Bradbury and Clark and Asimov. Like, they just weren't part of what drew me to the genre. They weren't significant books in my life. And, and I'm not trying to say they aren't significant, but there was and is this whole other thing going on in genre. And I think what's changed isn't so much women or writing or the stories that are being told as it is the world changed. Like publishing is putting a lot more money and time and emphasis behind different voices. The voting bodies of things like the Hugos are much more diverse and more gender balanced than they used to be. It's not suddenly like, oh, there's there's good books by women. It's that they're being read and they're being shared and they're being celebrated in new ways. And I think it's phenomenal and I'm very lucky to live in this moment. Well, I have to backtrack and add to what you're saying. We've talked a number of times about the book uh, Monster She Wrote. Are you familiar with this I've book? I've heard of it, but I haven't. Okay. Yeah. So it's about... Is this women in horror? Yeah, yeah. horror and, specul- and speculative fiction. Yeah. And so a lot of the names that you were mentioning were names that are in this book. So mm-hmm. I do think that a lot of those big names have been big names because of, as you said, the society, that there's sort of been this undercurrent 
of women, minority, the other, the yeah. outsider, I guess, yeah. writer that now is sort of having more of its day. Yeah, I totally think that's true. I mean, that's what I read growing up. That's the books that I remember being like baffled to kind of come into the larger sci-fi and fantasy readership and realize that there were people who had never heard of the books that I was reading. Like, they just weren't important to them. And we're just baffled that I could call myself a fan when I hadn't read Asimov. Like, and I didn't really care about them. Yeah. <laughs> and it just feels like there's this whole other world. So you said that your your mom yeah. got you into this. So mm-hmm. where did she discover? Where did my mom? <laughs> yeah, so she grew up Next in, week, uh, Alex Harrow's mom. <laughs> I mean, it's true, though. I mean, she grew up in Lawrence County, eastern Kentucky, was the first in her family to get a college degree and she she majored in lit and she found I think one of her focuses was African-American literature actually and she just found this huge her own thing she kind of like mined and gave them to me so I feel like I had a huge leg up. So I did want to ask you in both your short story and in your book your important characters are orphans or children whose parents aren't around in a meaningful way and you know this is a really popular motif in lots Mm -hmm. of children's and and YA books what is it about a child without parents that inspires great stories do you think yeah uh parents are anti-plot parents (laughs) are out there trying to stop these dangerous adventures from happening I am now and I think this is I I will frame this because I've had this conversation with writers from more marginalized backgrounds than me who would argue that their visions of parenting are much more like arming your child for a dangerous world and preparing them. And I think we don't see that in fiction as much yet, but we are increasingly doing it. But from a more privileged parent's perspective, it is very much like, nope, you're not the chosen one. Nope, you're not going on adventures. <laughs> Sit down. Those like, things are dangerous. Yeah, that's dangerous. What are you doing? Uh, so obviously when you're trying to come up with a plot, it's a lot easier if you don't have a parent around who is trying to stop that plot from happening. I also think <laughs> I was influenced by all those, you know, secret garden, a little princess. Like there's always these beautiful and courageous young orphan girls who, who just had these tragic things happen to their parents. Uh, I think I apparently told my parents when I was young that I wished I was an orphan. So that's my bad guy. <laughs> really sorry. I thought that was the only way I could have a cool life. Um, but I also... I had my first child halfway through writing this book, and it changed it significantly. Like, not necessarily the plot, but, like, the emotion of it. Um, And suddenly these absent parent figures who I had just been like, whatever, for plot reasons, they're not here, it's fine, became a lot more important to me. And, like, the resolution of those absent parents. I'm, I think, at a point in the book where you start to... Like, it's one thing to say that a parent isn't there, but then to think about all the reasons why a parent wouldn't be there, and probably none of those are because the parent doesn't want to be there. Right. And so I think as you get further in the book, you do start to see that a little bit of, of that understanding from the parent's perspective. I would say I started out writing it from the child's perspective, and by the end, it was like, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Let's dampen some of this plot down. (laughs) So what character or idea came to you first for the book? Was was there a spark that started your writing for Um, it? I saw this on Twitter, so I'm sorry for borrowing a joke, but it's something like people ask me, where did you come up with the idea for your novel? And the answer is that I tried really hard to come up with an idea for a novel for a long time. Uh, I've been writing short stories for a while, and I knew I wanted to try longer fiction. So I sat down, and I was like, 
I want to write a novel. And I wrote the first two pages, which are the least changed part of the book. They're still the first two pages. And I, you know, like I said things and I had no idea what they would later mean. And I kind of, I liked the voice of it though. So I, I came up with a plot that fit those first two pages mostly. Uh, the real question of course is like, how did those two pages get in my head and where are those influences? And it's only much later that I started to realize what I was pulling from and what I was responding to. The title, for instance, it turns out, I didn't realize this till I was going through my old reading journals, is a quote from All the Pretty Horses. Ah. Where he talks about like, it's like the two boys are leaving like two thieves in the night through an orchard with 10,000 worlds for the choosing. And like that idea of the 10,000 worlds and just, just this infinite possibility totally lodged in my head. A reader mentioned like, oh, it's just like the journey of Natty Gann, but if there was magic. I don't know if you all remember that 90s movie with a young John Cusack. It's about a young girl going on a long adventure to find her father with her dog. And I was like, whoops. <laughs> yep. what's, what's the name of The it? Journey of Natty Gann. I've got to go watch that. It's like huge fashion era. Man. Oh, he's adorable in it. He's yeah. a little baby. It's amazing. Yeah. So both the, the novel and the story that we mentioned have this universal idea of escape. So what is it about escape that appeals to you? And I guess on a larger level, what is it about escape that you think appeals to readers in Um, general? Yeah, I think I'm going to butcher this, but there's a Tolkien quote that's something like, if a prisoner escaped from his prison, we would congratulate him. So in defense of escapism, like, aren't we all trying to find ways out of our own narratives and stuff like that? Yeah, I, I just feel like we are stuck in these not necessarily mundane or uninteresting lives, but at least for me and maybe a lot of other kind of lonely rural kids, you feel like you're always just looking for something a little bit more, some place where you're gonna like enter this mythology that is grander and exaggerated and and more wonderful than what you have. That is a lot of the reason that I write. It's a lot of the reason that I write genre. And so when I sit down to come up with stories, a lot of what comes out is people who want to escape their own narratives and find different ones. One of the ideas of the book that I loved was words and books as power. And I think for all those readers out there who love a book about books or a book about words, you're going to love this book. But the things like the tattoos as contract, people would get married, they'd have tattoos put on. And writing words makes things real. And I just wondered if you could talk about that. Yeah, I mean, it is a little arrogant, is it? Like, whenever whenever a writer is like, writing is important, you're like, well, like an engineer being like, did you know engineering is important? And I understand why people roll their eyes. And I'm sorry if you're you're not nerds, but I feel your husbands would get this. In the last episode of Game of Thrones, in that terrible final season. It's horrible. In that horrible final season, which betrayed us all. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> One of the characters says something like, you know, what really matters? It's the story that matters. And I could feel like the entire internet rolling its eyes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And the thing is, even though I knew that wasn't earned in the show, it was like, it is. You're right. It is the stories that matter. Like, I'm such a sucker for things that argue that, like, the narratives that we tell and the words that we use are important. And I just, I, I think that comes from my historical training. I think that narratives about are just like how we think of ourselves and how we think about others. And I think when you you talk about changing those narratives, that is in many ways the definition of power. Like who gets to determine 
the stories that are told about the past and the present and different groups of people, that is the definition of power and changing those narratives is subverting it. So, you know, I am literally that cheesy. <laughs> so I have to know, how would you have had Game of Thrones end? Oh. Who would have been your chosen one? Look, I just, I just <laughs> feel like every character's arc was them reverting to the worst version of themselves. Yeah. And I would have done it literally the opposite. I'm an <laughs> optimist, okay? I would want everyone to, like, have had these experiences that made them better than themselves instead of worse. Jamie would never have left Brienne. I'm just, I yeah. just, it doesn't make sense. All right. <laughs> do you think that being a, a sci-fi fantasy writer, do you think being an optimist is comes with that I mean oh, do you think no. that's required have you read dystopian well, stuff yeah, like yeah. I, I mean but well just even the act of writing I think is in some ways an act of of optimism so I do think that yeah I mean like it's like any genre I think sci-fi and fantasy has the full breadth of like you can find people who are writing from places of hope and perseverance and people who are writing about how it's all kind of doom and gloom like I, I think that full range exists definitely the end that I'm on is kind of about finding the spark of hope in these troubling and difficult times like I try not to do it too fully escapist and too fluffy in ways that ignore the very real struggles that people have I'm you know I'm my mother's daughter I'm never going to write a sad ending you had mentioned too that you've got a deadline. You said I you're do. working on something else. So, God help me. so tell us. I mean, or are you able to tell us anything about what you're working on? Yeah. So when my publisher bought this book, they bought whatever I write next, uh, which I pitched as suffragettes but witches, which was three words that have taken more than a year to turn into a novel. Like that was a big leap. It turns out from that big concept to uh -huh. a book. Um, so the next one is another standalone historical fantasy, but it's as if the early 1890s women's movement in the U.S. were not just about women's rights, but about women's magic and restoring women's power. Another pretty literal metaphor. <laughs> so how much research did you have to do for your suffragette witch? Yeah, a lot more than I budgeted time-wise. <laughs> uh -huh. um, one of the most freeing things I did kind of early on was decide that I didn't want it to be a rigidly historically accurate thing and to instead make it a genuinely alternate history. So the, the main conceit is that the witch burnings were real and there were real witches and they were all burned, right? So the, like women's magic is gone, that's in the past and we live in like this progressive age of the 1890s. But when I made that change, I was like, why not just like allow myself to have timeline changes that will let me talk about all these different elements of the women's movement at one time. Because one of the problems I realized about talking about a women's movement is that it's like a century, at least. And it has infinite fragments and pieces and factions and, and landscapes. And so in order to like meaningfully talk about it, unless I was gonna get into this kind of minuscule scene in like one city with these people, I had to like pull it into one fictional city. So it's set in the fictional city of New Salem. And that gave me a lot more freedom to unburden myself from the historical minutia. Well, it sounds fascinating. <laughs> I know. So what does your writing process look like? Do you write every day? Do you do it in a certain place? It's just, it's really nice of you to assume that I have a process. <laughs> I really like that. I was, that's very flattering. Uh, no, I don't write every day. So when I was writing this book, The 10,000 Doors, 
I was working full time and then had a child in the middle of it. So there was no, it was just whatever slice of time I could find. Ideally, I did a lot of the four to 6 a.m. shift. I feel like that worked best for me. But my kid didn't sleep, things happened. Like, so it was just whenever I could, lunch breaks, if any of my former employers are listening, never during work hours, of course. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't have done that. Um, and then now, I no longer work. I am full-time writing, but I said that with air quotes around it because I do have two small children, so it's constantly interrupted. I still find myself writing in whenever I can, and I kind of try hard not to have too rigid a process. Like I try not to be like, well, I need to have my coffee, and I need to have this music playing, and I need to be in this room. Like I try to be infinitely flexible because I think that's the only way I'm going to meet this deadline. (laughs) So I went to the Southern Festival of Books a few weekends Mm -hmm. ago in Nashville and I went to a panel of authors and one of them it was Karen Thompson Walker who wrote The Dreamers and she was saying she also had young children I'm not sure for this book but maybe the one before and she said when she had those young children she would just get like an hour a day before they woke up. And then after they got a little older and they were in school, then she thought, oh, I have all this time to write. So she would set aside like four or five hours. And what she found was really she did all of her really good writing in that one hour that she would have had anyway. And so now that's pretty much what she does is just write one hour a day, usually early in the morning, because she said all that other time was just me plunking around. Plunking around. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's always weird to say like, oh, I'm writing right now at least 70% of the time I'm just like thinking or like writing and deleting or like googling some obscure thing that I think will be important like there's so much before the actual words get written that I'm trying to factor in. So uh, one of the things that has occurred to me so I'm a note jotter like I'll get Mm -hmm. an idea and then I jot it down and so is that how you do just because you're not sitting necessarily in one spot for hours at a time yeah uh, definitely I wish that I was a more organized person and had like a writing journal that I always (laughs) have with me and I do have one but it's never with me when I need it so I actually have like a million index cards and and grocery list that my husband can't throw away because I'm like no 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 no. I had an idea don't throw that away so he just like piles scraps that he finds and doesn't recycle them and just like sets them on the stairs for me for me to like review later yeah an episode that we've aired talks with somebody from Louisville Literary Arts and she talks about the difference between a plotter and a pantser as Mm -hmm. far are you a plotter do you do you plot it out meticulously or are you more by the seat of your pants I okay so here's the thing I actually don't really think there's two different kinds I think there are people who believe that they've plotted it and and I am one of those people and I love the comfort of having a beautifully detailed outline but it's always a lie like I just think there's very few writers who are like this is the plot that I've meticulously outlined and this is the book that I've written and they're perfect mirror images like that's not true and the truth is you're just trying to find a security blanket to take with you into the, the darkness that is drafting a book I mean and I like writing a lot but it's it's intimidating yeah <laughs> And I will say that I, I mean, I had to have an outline, like doing a book within a book that has multi-generational stories, like I needed a lot of planning to, for what information is revealed where and, and how you're going to end your chapters in ways that aren't just like where the stories feel like they're going together and you're not just completely reading two different novels. And that took a lot of planning, but I was almost always wrong in the smaller details <laughs> that I wrote. Since this is your first novel and you had written short stories before, I mean, and you've said you're going to write another novel, but in terms of what you're drawn to more, do you feel like you like writing the short story or the novel Um, better? I mean, 
I like them both. And I think the really cool thing about genre, which is less true in other genres, is that there's space, there's a market for any length of thing you want to write. Like there's increasingly a novella market in sci-fi and fantasy. And I think that's so cool. Because so if you have an idea, you never have to feel like I either have to cram this under 5,000 words or over 100,000. You can just let it be the size that it is. And I love that freedom. What plans do you have for the future in terms of writing or touring to promote this novel? Do you have anything coming up? I am mean, doing the Kentucky Book Festival in Lexington. Yes. So that um, is, I think, November 16th. 16th. Yeah. And I think you're the headliner. I am among many. There's a lot of, <laughs> lot of people. <laughs> and then on December 3rd, I'm going to do a thing with Gwenda Bond at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Lexington. And then on January 11th with Erin Morgenstern. At the oh, same. cool. I know. I'm very excited. Very She's cool. the one who wrote The Night Circus, Circus. and has yeah. a new book out. Yeah. This has been a real treat to talk to you all about your book and your short stories and your writing career. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. Harrow and Carrie. Carrie, what are you reading? I thought you were going to ask me in a cool accent. No, not today. Not today. Not this time. (laughs) So I... I'm going to talk about a book that I think I mentioned maybe another time. I heard about this author from the book Monster She Wrote, which I've talked about a lot. And it is by Margaret Sinclair. I found this short story. I just sort of started Googling her to see if I could find some of her stories. And the short story is called The Man Who Sold Rope to the Knolls. And I read this. It was a short little story about a man who actually goes and tries to sell rope to some gnolls. What are gnolls? They're sort of like little <laughs> troll-type oh, okay. creatures. Uh, it's, it's a very short story. I will not tell you how it ends. I enjoyed it enough that I read it to my sons, and they liked it. So the humor in it is, um, there's sort of like this, a, a little bit of adult humor I don't want to say adult humor but like I don't know that my sons saw the humor in some of the stuff is it sort of like certain animated movies that adults can go to and enjoy them because there's a layer yes. of like adult humor but yeah, then it a little appeals bit. to kids yeah and so they just kind of liked it because of what happens at the end you know I can't give you a whole lot cuz it's a short story it's a man he goes and he's trying to sell rope and he's very confident in his selling abilities. Like he has read the book on how to sell products to people. Okay, so my question is, so you found out about this author Mm -hmm. in that book, Monster She Wrote. Mm -hmm. So she either is a horror writer or a speculative Mm -hmm. fiction writer. So this would be, it's speculative. I mean, it would fall under sort of the fantasy because you've got, you know, as far as I know, I've never met a Noel. Okay. You know, he thinks that there's gonna be a big market you know, that Knowles need ropes. So did she have a career writing short stories or did she write other things? Oh, I mean, she did write other things. Mm-hmm. You know, this was just, I was looking for a quick kind of Googling her and I found this and it was a quick read and, and I enjoyed it. So, I, I mean, she's on my list. I want to find more of what she wrote. But for some of these writers, because of when they wrote, it's difficult to find their stuff. Like, you're not necessarily going to be able to go to the library and look up Margaret Sinclair and be able to find one of her books. So for some of these writers, it 
you know, you just have to find PDFs where you can find them. They might be in anthologies. I haven't had a chance to sort of dive in and figure things out about where I can locate these writers. That's what I have read. What about you, Alex? Are you reading anything since you're working on your book? Uh, I mean, I shouldn't be, but yes. And I've kept my books that I've recently loved down to a very reasonable three. So you're welcome. (laughs) The first one, they're all speculative. The first one is is kind of very talked about in certain spaces of sci-fi and fantasy already, but it's Gideon the Ninth. My husband's reading that right is now. He, does he love it? Yeah, he does okay. like it a it's lot. It's so deeply weird and specific. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like it should be a giant hit. It feels like, well, this is too strange to really have mass appeal, but it does. Um, it has an extremely online and, I would argue, millennial sense of humor. It's like a haunted house gothic mystery in space with lesbian necromancers, and it's great. <laughs> now, it's say so the author's fun. name, because it's an unusual name. Tamsin Muir. She's a New, New Zealander. Zealander. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've already got to read the sequel because of my special author privileges, Ooh. and it's fantastic. It's great. Um, so I didn't know there was special spe- author privileges. Oh, it's the best special author privilege, <laughs> is that every now and then a publisher will email me and be like, we have these uh, advanced reading copies of these books, and we were wondering if you wanted to read it and give a blurb. I'm like, oh. I do. Yes. <laughs> give me that. Uh, which the next one is also my special author privileges, which is N.K. Jemison. I don't know if you mm-hmm. guys have read her. So mm-hmm. she's the only person of any gender or race to ever win Hugo for Best Novel three times in a row. Yes. She's amazing. Her new trilogy starts next year with The City We Became, and it is like a magical New York City where each of the boroughs is embodied by a living person, a specific avatar, and it's like this battle of these five defenders of New York City against these eldritch and otherworldly forces. And it is so fun and subversive and and a really specific middle finger to H.P. Lovecraft, who's the worst, (laughs) who is just the worst. So I absolutely love that one. And then a book that is actually out now, sorry guys, (laughs) is The Unlikely Escape of Uriah Heep. And I don't know if, if you like Dickens. Uriah Heep might ring like a I was going to say, that name bell. sounds familiar. And it's a minor character from David Copperfield. Okay. So the whole idea of this book, which is also by another New Zealand author, actually, is someone with the power to read characters out of books. Like Inkart. <gasps> Did you ever read Inkart as a kid? Like, anyway. No, but I'm, it's for I'm adults. Just- I need to write all these down. And it's by a professor of Victorian literature. So she knows what she's talking about. And at some point, just like the feel of the book, at some point there are five Mr. Darcy's from (gasps) different versions of Pride and Prejudice running around. And it is so delightful if you like books and reading. Um, And it's not just like it sounds a little cheesy, but it's, it's really smart. And it has a lot to do with, like, the characters are shaped by the readers who read them out of the book. Like, there's different interpretations of different characters running around, and it's great. Now, you, you said this was the only one out, but the first one's out, Oh, right? Gideon the Ninth is okay, out. Okay, I was saying, did, did my husband get no, special no, no. <laughs> reading privileges and I don't know about it? No, Gideon the Ninth is out. <laughs> Okay, sorry, I'm jotting notes here, Amy. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm waiting for you to ask I know, me what I'm I know, reading, but Carrie. I'm jotting, I'm like, this Uriah Heap, and there's five Mr. Darcy's, and They're, this is like a amazing. dream come true. All right, well, then I'm just going to yes, go right please in. please tell us, what are you reading? So I'm coming off of my month of October where I read, I like to read seasonally, so I've read a lot of horror, dark things for the month of October, and I know that next week I probably need to start reading our book club's Book. And for our book club for November, 
all of us are just supposed to read a Toni Morrison book. It doesn't matter which one, just read and we're going to come and we're just going to talk about all of them. And Toni Morrison is not a light read. I love her, but she's not a light read. So I needed something kind of light. So I read The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett, which is a children's book that I never read when I was a child. And this is totally coincidence, but there are a lot of doors in the secret garden, which we've been talking about today. I have described my book as, what if the secret garden had a plot? (laughs) That's it. Because I love the secret garden so much. It's delightful. And I can't believe I never read it as as a kid. But it was written in 1911. And that author, she also wrote Little Lord Fauntleroy and The Little Princess. I never read any of those either. Apparently, I need to go back and, and... beef up on some of my children's books. Um, The main character is Mary, and she's 10 years old, and she spends the first 10 years of her life in India. Her parents are there with the British Empire, and they don't really pay too much attention to her. Her mother, I don't think, ever really wanted to have children, and so kind of ignore her. And the Indian servants are really the ones who take care of her, and they sort of give in to her every whim, which then makes her kind of spoiled, and no one really wants to be around her. So what happens is there's a cholera outbreak, and both of her parents die. Got to get rid of them. I know, that's right. (laughs) You have to get rid of those parents. And all the servants who are left sort of flee. And so she's left in this house by herself until she's kind of discovered. And she's sent to England to live with her uncle. Her uncle lives on this very gloomy estate in the Yorkshires. So the uncle's very strange. His wife died 10 years earlier, and since then he cannot bear to see people. He's covered all the pictures in the house that had his wife's portrait on it. And there is supposedly a garden on the estate that was his wife's, but when she died, he locked it up and buried the key so no one could go in. So Mary is intrigued by this garden, and she eventually finds it. And she works hard on that garden every day. And she employs the help of a local boy who's my favorite character right now, Dickon. He's very outdoorsy. And he's a friend to all the local animals. He's sort of like a Victorian-era Steve Irwin, (laughs) if there was such a thing. (laughs) And then there's Colin, who's actually the son of her uncle, who she finds. He's been hidden away in a room. She hears this crying. And eventually, she gets up in the middle of the night. And she goes, and she opens lots of doors. Wait, the uncle who doesn't like to see people? Yes. That includes his kid in the attic. He has a secret Mm -hmm. kid in the attic. Or not necessarily the attic, but in a different part of the manor. Uh, His name is Colin. His father doesn't want to see him either because it reminds him of his wife. And he's been led to believe that he's sickly and will die early. He never leaves his room. He's supposed to stay like just laying down in his bed so that he doesn't die. So he's convinced he's going to die. He's also spoiled because all of the servants have to do everything that he says or he will send them away. Dad will let him do whatever he wants just as long as he doesn't have to see them. It's very sad. I mean, very neglectful. But he really likes Mary, and they become friends. So in this book, the doors aren't really, you know, magical realism per se. They definitely are an escape, but it's also a way of getting rid of secrets. Although it feels kind of magical, even though there's actually no magic in the book, it does have that magical feel to it. And I'm finding it delightful, and I really love it. And I was telling Carrie on the way up, I'm not sure if I would have loved it as a kid, though, because there's a lot in there about gardening and things, which is 
something that I like to do as an adult, but as a child, I might have found that dull. There's also a lot of moralizing about being spoiled. Yes, and there I is. feel like as a kid, you're a little bit like, Ugh. yes, because <laughs> yes, because that's the, that's a line parents like use yeah. on you when you're not behaving the way they want. You're just spoiled. So I would like to make a plug. There's I think like 92 and 94 version movie versions of both A Little Princess and The Secret Garden that are very near to my heart. Like, are they animated no, or they're they're okay. live action and they're amazing. I think A Little Princess is on Netflix and the Dickon in the adaptation of Secret Garden was probably one of my first crushes. Oh, oh. yeah. Well, he is a very Oh, he's, he's a very cute kid. And they use a lot of dialect in the book, which I maybe you know, at a very young age, I would have had a hard time with that Yorkshire accent. So anyway, I'm enjoying that, and I'm going to have to watch that movie now. All right. Well, when we come back, we are going to be asking Alex Hero her top five. We are back with Alex Hero, and we are going to be asking her her top five. So Alex, you have several degrees in history. What is your top historical period and why? So I think I already mentioned this, but turn of the 20th century, I wouldn't say it's my favorite. It's a disaster, but I think it's the most interesting and illuminating for our present. Is there a certain person or situation or event that really just sort of sticks with you? I keep circling back to like the peak of scramble for Africa, 19th century imperialism, just really, and and kind of the dynamics between the rise of true Western capital and power and the things that they did and got away with in the rest of the world. Well, I'm not a trained historian anymore. I love to read historical fiction, and I do like to read some nonfiction about history, but an era, I don't, I mean, it's hard to say a favorite, but I really enjoyed reading books that have been set in the jazz age, sort of Mm -hmm. the 20s, and some books that I have really, really enjoyed that have been favorites have been set at that time. So Rules of Civility by Amor Tolls is a favorite of mine, and, you know, The Great Gatsby. So you live with your family here in Berea, and which is a small college and arts-focused town in Kentucky. What has been one of your top reasons for settling there? I wish this were cooler, but the honest truth is it is very, very cheap. <laughs> like, it's a great place to live. We both went to school here. We have a community of friends, but we've kind of built our lives around having time and the financial freedom to make terrible choices. So I could get my multiple history degrees and be a novelist, which is not, like, a, known to be a steady source of money. Uh, my husband is a part-time li- librarian with a music degree. So with that rock and roll lifestyle, we are able to afford Berea. Well, there's a lot worse places. It's very picturesque. Yeah, Berea is very nice. So you say on Goodreads that you've had many types of jobs over the years. What was the top job that has contributed to or given you the most ideas for your writing? I mean, I'm just going to be unbearably cheesy here and say that it was harvesting blueberries in Maine because that's, you know, I was living in a bus and this guy's property and we would go to like different blueberry fields every day and rake them and pack them but the main thing is that that's where I fell in love and I met my husband and we now have two children and live in Berea and like so it completely changed your life it did change my life it did um and he was you know he's from upstate New York he was only there to do the he answered a Craigslist ad and ended up in the same place that I was and I'm pretty sure that like every story that I write is in some way that story of like going out to seek adventure and finding you know 
fulfilling your heart's desire. That makes me think of John Irving's The Cider House Rules. <gasps> did you ever read yes, that? Yes, I did. <laughs> I <laughs> love The that. harvesting of the apples. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's mm-hmm. what it makes me think of. So when I was doing some research on you to come up with these questions, I saw that on Goodreads that you had worked as in, like a, in an ice cream shop. For like my second job or something. Yeah. yeah. And so I... I had a job, too, at an ice cream shop, and I loved it. It didn't contribute in any way to who I am or any of the jobs <laughs> I have, but I loved working at an ice cream shop. And, and it was the kind, not the scoop kind, but it was soft serve. Oh, so nice. it was just, it was a really sweet job. Like, ha, 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 ha. ha, ha. It was awesome. So <laughs> uh, ice cream shop jobs rule. So when you read a book... What is your top place to read and in what format? Uh, right now, I read almost exclusively on my Kindle at night. Ideally, I would be in like a remote cabin in the woods and I would have like a fire and it would be fall and I would have endless coffee and I would be re- reading like beautiful hardback editions or actually those like mass market paperbacks that they don't really make anymore. I feel like they're all oversized like trades now, they but are, I used yeah. to love those tiny, cheap paperbacks uh-huh. that's what I want to be reading but like that's just not how my life rolls right now like I can read at night and my kids because they're spoiled and terrible sleep in the room with us and so I have to read by the glow of the Kindle screen rather than turning on a light and that's just how it is <laughs> and our last question you mentioned you have mentioned your kids you're a mom of two young kids so what is the top benefit of having semi-feral children or having been one yourself? And we use that word because you've used it yourself. That's true. They're not just calling my children feral. They, yeah. just, <laughs> they didn't just it's like the, It's on the description of you on the book cover. <laughs> they were just like, look at her. She clearly has kids that are out of control. We are, yeah, we're yeah. judgy McJudgeons. <laughs> uh, no, so the best thing about kids is that, number one, they teach me to write whenever I can and not when inspiration strikes, which I think is useful. Uh, They absolutely keep me, I guess, perspective. Children are the up here in my rankings and I'm lifting my hand very high. And then (laughs) everything else, including writing and like all these publishing dreams coming true, is way down low. So they really help me like keep perspective. And then they just, again, I'm a very cheesy person, but they just have this very genuine sense of wonder and of not being able to tell the difference between reality and fiction in a way that I find just endlessly fun. So like my three-year-old this summer at some point, he was like saying he was scared of some monster. I was like, well, honey, monsters aren't real. They're just pretending. He's like, yeah, like sharks. Sharks might be real. We won't talk about that. I just love that. I love the things that he says. Well, it has been a real pleasure for us, and we're going to make sure we get our picture taken with Alex. It's it's fangirling over here a little bit, and I rarely ever fangirl over anybody. So it's been a real pleasure. We appreciate you talking with us, and we wish you continued success thank in you all so your ventures. And thank you so much for your questions and for coming all the way out here. If you'd like to hear more from Alex Harrow, you can follow her on Twitter at... Alex, A-L-I-X-E, Harrow, H-A-R-R-O-W. And on Instagram, at Alex, period, E, period, Harrow. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod 
to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.